0: The winner uh, of the contest, and the the winning question comes from Christina Kang, and she asks, Hi Chris, I'm sold on a need for more protein, especially as a gracefully aging woman. However, there seems to be concern with high protein intake as related to one, cancer, and two, longevity mTOR activation. Can you share what quality research actually shows or does not show? and explain the mechanisms, if possible. This is a clip from a live Q&A session open to CMJ Masterpass members. In addition to this episode, you can access lots of other free samples from these sessions at the first link in the description. And so I prepared an answer to this that has links to a bunch of different papers, and so I'm gonna put that in the chat right now, and I'll also include it later in the show notes, and then I'll I'll walk you through my response to this. Alright, so the origin of the hypothesis that feeding state physiology, this means calories, carbohydrate, protein, insulin, mTOR, ATP, all the stuff that is abundant and signaling that the body is in a state of abundance. The origin of the hypothesis that those things drive against longevity comes from the worm C. elegans, which is a worm that is very commonly used for science, especially for studying molecular mechanisms of things. And this model is a valuable source of hypotheses around longevity, but much of the research is confounded by the fact that in C. elegans, the primary driver of longevity is spending more time in what's called a dour state, which is a state of dormancy that humans do not go into. And so this is not to say that there's nothing valuable that comes from C. elegans studies for human longevity, but it is to say that anything that comes out of that needs to rigorously go through research on its relevance to humans before we even consider it probable that it provides any useful insights. Because obviously, the longevity that is due to spending more time in the state of dormancy in the worm has to be teased out from other mechanisms of aging that might actually have relevance to, to humans. Alex Leif has provided a very worthwhile critique of the role of protein restriction and longevity that I will link to in the show notes. One of the most important points that he raises comes from a meta-analysis of all of the different mouse models of longevity. And what they show is that some strains of mice respond to protein restriction or energy restriction with a longevity benefit. Others live less long when they are exposed to longevity strategies like that. And so my point from that would be that if looking at all the mouse studies shows that we can't generalize across mice of different strains, then that makes it much more questionable whether we can generalize from mice to humans or from monkeys to humans. In other words, I become more and more confident when we can generalize from you know, across all different strains of a species and across all different species, I become more and more confident that we can generalize from animals to humans. But if we can't generalize across animal species, then I become very less, much less confident about that. So for example, if you take cholesterol and heart disease, It has been shown very consistently across animal species that if you cause hyperlipidemia, you will cause atherosclerosis. It has not been shown consistently that if you feed cholesterol, you do the same thing. So for example, while it was shown in many species that you could cause atherosclerosis by feeding cholesterol, you could not do that in dogs and you could not do that in rats. And it turned out that that's because uh, it turned out that that's because there are differences in the regulation of blood lipids in response to dietary cholesterol in those species. And the thing you can generalize is hyperlipidemia. The thing you can't generalize is dietary cholesterol. And I would say that in general, physiology is much more generalizable than diet. And that's because quite often the physiological underpinning of a disease state is shared across species, whereas the physiological response to diet is not. And that is straightforwardly predicted from the fact that the cardiovascular system of a rat and a human is quite similar. The heart, for example, is quite similar. So, the cardiovascular uh, system in its health and disease is probably regulated quite similarly yet the ancestral diet of a human is radically different from the ancestral diet of a rat, and even more different from the diet that rats have been bred to be adapted to inside the laboratory over the last few centuries. And so you would expect these dietary variables to be much less generalizable than the underlying physiology. So to tie that into longevity, It's probably true that if you protect, you know, once you get rid of injuries, accidents, pathogens as causes of death, and once you control for the fact that most animals do not develop hyperlipidemia and the associated degeneration of lipoproteins unless they are given diets that induce that, They typically don't develop that on their standard diet. So once you get rid of those causes of death, the leftover causes of aging probably share a similar pathophysiology. So that if you want to talk about, you know, what if insulin resistance drives cancer in some way, then once you get to insulin resistance in humans, and once you get to insulin resistance in mice, you may well see a common promotion of cancer with the insulin resistance, but your dietary strategy for resolving insulin resistance or preventing it might be very different in a human than in a mouse. That's, that's what I mean by the physio, the pathophysiology being more similar than the physiological response to diet across species. With that said, if you look inside the mouse studies where mice and strains of mice that do respond well, To calorie or protein restriction. And you look at and you try to tease out the fact that calorie restricted mice usually also spend most of the day fasting. The studies that have tried to tease those apart have shown that spending part of the day fasting is more important than calorie restriction. The metabolic response to eating the same amount of food, but having a fasting period rather than grazing on that same amount of food all day long is superior in producing the metabolic benefits to restricting the amount of food equal to or superior to that and when they're compared head to head you get superior or at least equal benefits from eating the same amount of food but having a fasting period, meaning some sort of intermittent fasting, you get the same or better benefits in mice when you have intermittent fasting than calorie restriction. In other words, it's not from restricting protein or calories, it is from cycling through the feeding and fasting state where you're reaping most of those metabolic benefits. And so, I do think that is probably something that plays out in humans. And there's some evidence on this. We don't have, you know, randomized controlled trials of lifespan, but we do have suggestions that that intermittent fasting provides the benefits of calorie restriction. And that goes along with protein restriction, right? Because if you're eating the same amount of food on the same diet, you're getting the same amount of protein. And so if putting a, a period of fasting into that Gives you the same benefits, then that means that you don't need to restrict the protein to get those benefits in the same way that it means you don't need to restrict the calories to get those benefits. Okay, now one of the problems with generalizing from longevity experiments in animals is that animals do not all have the same causes of death that that humans do. So to start out with, animals are kept in what's called a, a specific pathogen- free facility. Which means that they aren't exposed to the common pathogens that cause respiratory illnesses in humans, for example, which is one of the leading causes of death. These animals generally are not given diets that make bone loss a major part of their causes of death. And I'm not saying that they don't have bone loss when they age. But they're generally given a nutritionally optimized diet in a way that humans are given recommendations, but don't necessarily follow them. Uh, you know, so unless you're doing a junk food study, you generally don't have mice or rats or whatever given the equivalent of Coca-Cola or junk food. You know, that it's not that purified rodent diets are the healthiest diet for the rat, but they're a lot healthier. a nutritionally inadequate junk food filled diet that the typical human is at least partly eating, right? So humans are eating ultra-processed food as the majority of their diet, which has hidden phosphorus additives that are terrible for your bones. Many humans aren't getting you know, meeting the recommended amount of nutrients, whether it's from me or from the RDAs or from the FDA's daily values or whatever, many Americans are eating at least marginally nutritionally inadequate diets. And so bone loss is a major driver of human mortality from early on, right? When you're talking about osteopenia and osteoporosis, you're looking at women in their 60s having a high rate of that. and if you look at, Peter Atiyah talks about this all the time, if you look at the one-year mortality for a, someone who just suffered a hip fracture, in those who suffered a hip fracture and did not have it surgically addressed, the one-year mortality is 70%. And in those who did have it addressed surgically, the one-year mortality is 20%. And so bone loss is a major driver of mortality in humans in a way it's just not in in rodents. Now in rodents the leading causes of death do include a lot of cardiac cardiovascular mortality as they do in humans they do include a lot of abnormal growths that may often be cancers which is the leading cause of death in humans after a certain point um but bone health doesn't seem to be a major a major driver if you look at the leading causes of death in humans you have cardiovascular diseases as number 1 and you have after that cancer but remember that you know you are generally getting cardiovascular disease if you did not die from a hip fracture and you're generally getting cancer if you lived long enough to not die of cardiovascular disease so it's you don't want to just look at the quality i mean i mean excuse me the quantity of deaths You will also want to look at the fact that if you can't not get a hip fracture, you probably shouldn't be thinking about cancer, right? And so if these animals in the lab experiments are not dying, they are dying of testicular cancer and they're, and they're not dying. They're not fracturing their hip. Then you are misallocating your mental resources. If you are overthinking about cancer without giving equal amount of thought to hip fracture. And that's really important when you're talking about protein because the science is very clear that a high protein diet is good for your bones I mean that's that's just straight up unambiguous, okay, so with that said, with the important point that we have to think about the sequence of events that would serially lead to a risk of death one after the other with um you know. Honestly, diabetes coming first, bone problems coming next, cardiovascular problems coming after that, cancer coming after that. That's thinking of it serially. If we just look at the quantity, cardiovascular deaths are on top. I'm pooling heart and stroke together. Uh, So all cardiovascular events are at the top. Next is cancer. In the COVID era, the way they count the COVID deaths, COVID is next. Um, you know, but if we just sum the respiratory diseases, we could say respiratory diseases is next. Uh, that might be the COVID deaths are greatly inflated as tagging COVID as part of it. So probably the respiratory diseases come later. Uh, what comes after that is injuries. And so, you know injuries would include bone health of course injuries is also greatly going to be influenced by your mobility program your neurological control your a lot of the things that peter atia talks about with you know being able to get up off the ground with one hand um being able to lift this and that your ability to perform at at daily tasks in an injury-free manner because you've been properly physically training for them will be the number three thing that you need to protect yourself against death with after cardiovascular disease and cancer. And that's above, we know it's above respiratory diseases because respiratory diseases would not be next in this list if they were not inflating the COVID deaths in the way that they've been doing. Um, And also, protein is good for your bones, protein is good for, for your muscle mass, and so protein is sort of the number two seated thing after proper physical training for injury prevention that is your third most important protection against death. After that, we have Alzheimer's disease, diabetes and kidney disease. So if I'm looking at the role of protein in all these things, I can say for cardiovascular disease, I think protein is largely neutral. I think cardiovascular and I've, I'm not going to give you every link in the show notes about the pathophysiology of each of these diseases. I've written extensively about heart disease in the past. I think this is due to the oxidation of blood lipids. And so. Thyroid hormone is very protective against cardiovascular disease by preventing hyperlipidemia. Uh, optimizing body composition and insulin signaling is very important for managing blood lipids. Genetics play a, a big role in your response diet. Some For some people, fiber is important. For some people, dietary cholesterol is important. For some people, saturated fat is important, but those are not true as broad generalizations. Uh Protein is nowhere in my top list, either to increase it or decrease it for cardiovascular prevention. And antioxidant protection, again, and and sort of inflammation resolution are also important there. Those are the top list of things in cardiovascular pathology. Protein is nowhere to be found. Cancer is the next leading cause of death, but is also the serially last leading cause of death. Right. So even though cancer accounts for more deaths than injuries, injuries will kill you before cancer will, most of the time. I know there's childhood cancers, but generally speaking, cancer is the last thing to kill you. And you only made it to the victory of having died of cancer if you didn't get injured and have that lead to your death first, right? So even though injuries are the third leading cause of death, they kill you before cancer does. With that and protein is very important for preventing injuries. With that said, what's the relationship of protein with cancer? Well, I think far more far more interesting than any of the observational data in humans is the very elegantly controlled studies of T Cole and Campbell. I've written extensively about these studies. He amassed a very important body of work showing that protein causes cancer to grow when you have cancer, but in any other context it prevents cancer. So, if you control the dosing of the carcinogen, which is, in humans, this only occurs in an industrial accident where your carcinogen was here, where's mine, can't see my hand. If you if you know your carcinogen was here, then everything before it, you know, protein protected you. Everything after it, protein made it worse. That only happens in an industrial accident with a carcinogen exposure. exposure in humans. That does not happen otherwise. We are daily exposed to low doses of carcinogens of many different types. And the animal experiments say protein protects you against cancer in that context because it promotes detoxification of carcinogens. So I would say that if you have cancer, you should experiment with a low-protein diet because if you have cancer, diagnosed cancer, protein will probably promote its growth. But if you don't know you have cancer, then you treat yourself as being chronically exposed to low-dose carcinogens, in which case high-protein diets prevent cancer. Okay, so cardiovascular disease, protein is not important. Cancer, um, next leading cause of death, protein protects you unless you have cancer third leading cause of death is injuries, but they kill you before cancer, so it's more important to prevent yourself from injuries than it is to protect yourself from cancer, because they happen first. Protein protects you against injuries by promoting strong muscles and bones. Um, If we look at, okay, so respiratory diseases are somewhere next in the list before or after injuries, depending on how you count COVID. But what causes COVID to be severe and make you die? Arginine depletion, tryptophan depletion, glycine depletion, and glutamine depletion. It is almost certainly the case that a high-protein diet makes you less likely to die from any respiratory disease, any infectious disease, and definitely COVID. So protein, again, protects you. If we look at Alzheimer's I doubt that I doubt that protein is a major driver however many people call Alzheimer's type 3 diabetes because of the close resemblance to insulin resistance within the brain diabetes is the next cause of death after alzheimers and of course diabetes can kill you way earlier than alzheimers can so diabetes is more important to protect against than Alzheimer's because it comes first like injuries do. right? Diabetes and injuries are more important because they, they happen first. If you can't survive diabetes and injuries, you will not be glorious enough to make it to cancer and Alzheimer's. Um, but that said, having muscle mass as a key disposal for glucose is critical to prevent diabetes. And it's probably important to prevent Alzheimer's because of the relationship of, of Alzheimer's to insulin resistance. And protein, uh, not only is protein a key driver of muscle mass, but your protein requirement to prevent sarcopenia, which is loss of muscle mass, increases as you get older, making it more important to consume more protein when you get older. Kidney disease, I think if you have kidney disease, you need to eat a lower protein diet, but there's no evidence that protein causes kidney disease. It probably has a very similar relationship to cancer. So it's, and I'm, not, I'm less sure of that, but probably a, pro, uh, a protein rich diet puts you in a better position and not get kidney disease, but you have to restrict it if you have it. You have to restrict protein most likely if you have cancer, but protein will prevent cancer. So Across the leading causes of death, protein is your ally, not your foe. Now, with that said, Christina did want me to address mechanisms. So, mTOR is the one she specifically asked about. mTOR is a sensor of nutrient abundance. It responds most importantly to ATP, which means calories, to leucine and arginine, which means protein, and to S-adenosylmethionine, or SAMe, the universal methyl donor, which is a composite sensor of calories in the form of ATP because ATP activates methionine and protein. Although, as you all know, it's also influenced by B vitamins and all the things related to homocysteine recycling. Uh, but still, SAME, acidinazyl methionine, rises in the Fed state. So mTOR is very much a sensor of Fed state physiology in the same way that insulin is. These interplay with IGF-1. IGF-1 is another argument around cancer. Um, Fed state physiology is also governed by ATP. It's governed by NADH. It's governed by citrate. It is not something you can mimic. You cannot adequately mimic the fasting state with fasting state mimetics. Mimetics are things that mimic things, right? So metformin um, and... uh, I'm blanking on, what's that metformin mimetic that, um, I'm blanking on it, metformin mimetics of herbal origin, etc. I am not a fan of putting those into the fed state because they, they mimic part of fasting state physiology, but fasting state physiology is meant to have many redundant signals so that you can't game it right you can game it a little bit if you're fasting you can put in things that accelerate the fasting state physiology but you can't game it by taking a pill when you're in the fed state and so i understand that metformin has benefits in diabetes so it's better to have a fasting state mimetic than to have no fasting state signals but mtor is not like a singular you know you can't just like take rapamycin and And target mTOR um, and not be fasting and expect to reap the benefits of fasting when you are not mimicking the the, um, ATP depletion, the citrate depletion, the NADH depletion, the low insulin levels, etc. There's these these regulators act as nodes in a network with redundant signaling that you can't mimic by taking a pill or by targeting one node in the communication like mtor with that said mtor is a sensor of nutrient abundance responding to calories to protein to methyl donors and certainly many of the benefits of fasting are resulting from mtor restriction in the same way that they're resulting from insulin restriction and citrate restriction and nadh restriction and atp restriction in other words they are MTOR plays a role in fasting state physiology. Fasting is beneficial, is a simpler way to say that. However, mTOR drives myelin synthesis. MTOR drives bone growth. MTOR drives building things up, right? So if you look at the fasting-feeding cycle cycle, the fasting is state is where all cleaning takes place. The fed state is where all building takes place if the only thing you ever do is clean your house and throw things out, you will not have a nice house. But if you throw out your junk and you buy nice things, you will have a nice house. Right? Cleaning house and putting things in a tag sale is the fasting state. Buying new things that you like is the fed state. You are not going to be healthy if you spend all your time in a fasting state. You cannot heal in the fed state if you have lots of degenerate junk in the way. You have to cycle through the fasting state and into the fed state. The fasting state is where all cleaning takes place. The fed state is where all healing takes place. Right, So you want to cycle in and out of mTOR. And in fact, if you look at the role of mTOR in bone growth, mTOR wants to have the gas pedal on to a creaked bone mass. But You want to take your foot off the mTOR gas pedal if you want quality of bone. It's not that mTOR is good for your bones or mTOR is bad for your bones. It's just that bone mass accretion takes place in the mTOR activated state, and bone quality reassignment takes place in the mTOR inactivated state, right? So if you look at the role in bone physiology, you want to cycle in and out of mTOR activation. Um, if you look at IGF-1, just to add some things here, the effective protein intake on IGF-1 is extremely inconsistent. So I'll put a, sh- a, note, a study in the show notes that shows that um, IGF-1 decreases with lower protein intake in people aged 50 to 65, but not in people over 65. So what are you going to do with information like this? Are you going to eat a low-protein diet when you're 50 and then transition to a higher-protein diet when you're 65? But what if you get osteoporosis when you're 52 instead of when you're 67 because of that? Uh, The most consistent relationship of igf one with anything is BMI. And so maintaining healthy body composition is going to be very important for igf one in the same way. It's going to be uh, important to all the other... Aspects of the feeding uh, of fasting, feeding regulation that become dysregulated during obesity and insulin resistance. And so, to sum up, um, I believe that you should not look primarily at animal studies for longevity. You should look in order of things that kill you first, right? So, diabetes is first, injuries is close to that. Heart disease is later. Cancer is last. Despite that, when you look at all of the leading causes of death, while it suggests that you may want to restrict protein if you have cancer diagnosed or you have kidney disease, other than that, protein protects you. And so you want a protein-rich diet. However, you also want to have healthy body composition and cycle in and out of the fasting-feeding state. I don't know what the optimal fasting, feeding, cycling is, I just know that any one that's been tried, such as one meal a day or periodic longer fasts is better than what most people do, but it may well be that for many people, eating two meals a day or three meals a day with no snacks and having a good 13-hour overnight fast every night is the minimal effective dose that gives you most of the benefits so i advocate everyone having a fasting feeding state uh fasting feeding cycle for the average person i don't know that you need to do anything more than two or three meals with no snacks and 13 hour overnight fasts but for people who are trying to resolve intractable health problems especially anything related to mitochondrial damage neurological damage um Post COVID vaccine side effects and immune immune dysregulation. I think any of those uh, should you should strongly consider experimenting with more extended and accentuated fasting feeding cycles. Always remembering that accentuating a robust fed state is equally important to accentuating a robust fasting state because fasting is where all cleaning takes place and feeding is where all healing takes place. Thank you, Christina, for your question. This is a clip from a live Q&A session open to CMJ Masterpass members. In addition to this episode, you can access lots of other free samples from these sessions at the first link in the description. If you want to become a Masterpass member so that you can participate in the next live Q&A or so that you can have access to the complete recording and transcript of each Q&A session, you can join at chrismasterjohnphd.com slash masterpass. You can save 10% off the subscription price for as long as you remain a member by signing up at That's Q and A spelled out as Q-A-N-D-A. These links are in the description.